Betul Kezar, how are you? I'm great. Thank you for being here. Well, I'm, I'm glad you guys have asked me to be here. Really glad. In and out, belonging and not, forever splintering along borders and law. Here, an outsider within, there, an, out, an insider without, spy and traitor between white and black, the gray exist, but cannot. What are you trying to say, Betul? That was something I wrote yesterday, very recently, and it's, uh, I think those few lines of poetry have been in the making for a very long time in my head. They just came out perfectly yesterday. Mm. Um, for me, especially, not only throughout my life, but this year specifically has been a year of questioning identity. Um, and it's been a year, not only my national identity, as in being an expat who was born and raised in Kuwait, but also my identity as, um, as someone with a Muslim background, as a woman, as a student, you know, um, it, and especially so because of certain, uh, developments in my personal life, but also I'd say uh, because of this very interesting class I'm taking at university on identity and difference. Um, this year it has sort of made me really think about why do we categorize ourselves in certain ways? Uh, why do I describe myself as a student? Why do I describe myself as Indian or expat? You know, because my experience is not just the experience of an Indian or an expat, or it's not an experience of Kuwait. It's an experience of those things combined and much more. Mm. Uh, but that poem, what I'm getting at is that in today's world, we are, and you can use this, I suppose, in any, um, to describe any facet of identity, that we are, that there are boxes that we must tick, that there are categories that we must satisfy. And that if you happen to have an experience or your uh, beliefs and values sort of lie on the periphery between two categories, between two boxes, then you are forced to choose, not only by society, but also by, uh, by law, by the boundaries of nation states that you have to define yourself as Indian or as Kuwaiti or as Palestinian or Jordanian or whatever, you know? And that I think is very frustrating for a lot of people these days, especially in today's globalized world where many of us have an international experience and that experience is inadequately described or valued. We are still it feels like the social and legal structures that we live in are not suited to the 21st century, that they have just been carried forward from the 19th and 20th centuries into this world. But we are now sort of struggling against defining ourselves as international, as transnational, as something more than just what, you know, a single category label described to us. I think what you're describing is the very definition of a third culture kid. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, that's the classic dilemma mm -hmm. of a third culture kid. You grew up, I grew up here uh, in Kuwait, uh, but I'm Indian. And um, it, it's uh, a very strange feeling because I think people who have grown up here as, as expats know that there's a clear divide between Kuwaitis and non-Kuwaitis. Mm -hmm. And that as a, as a non-Kuwaiti kid growing up here, 
you uh, it's sort of rare for you to understand what Kuwaiti life is like. Very At least true. for me, like I went to a private Indian school and had a great education, but I all my friends were Indian. I didn't have a single Kuwaiti or Arab friend until I joined university. So that tells you about my understanding of what life as a Kuwaiti was, right? Or what it meant to be Kuwaiti, how I saw it, I had no idea. So, but even then, I still feel attached to Kuwait. It's home, it's the place where I know how the system works. I know, you know, if someone says, uh, be here at 7, 7 o'clock in the evening, it's probably going to start at 7.45. <laughs> You've been here timely, actually. <laughs> well, yeah, that's just a personal anomaly, I'm, I'm very punctual. But, you know, I still identify with it. Um, on the other hand, I go back to India, and I, I do identify with India because that's what I've studied. That's the history of India that I've studied uh, in school. I speak Hindi and Gujarati. Um, I take an interest in Indian politics. It, you know, the direction of the country concerns me. But at the same time, when I go to India, I'm completely out of place. I am. It's like I'm a tourist in my own country. Mm -hmm. And that feeling is... It's very strange. I'm a tourist in my own country who doesn't do touristy things. Like I go to India and I visit family, but you still feel like a tourist. So is that is that the lines where you say here and outsider within and there and insider without? Exactly. Like, you know, in Kuwait here. I am an Indian, an expat who lives in Kuwait. So when I talk about issues of Kuwaiti society and I have these discussions with a lot of my friends, it's that... You know, you feel, uh, and I guess inadvertently this feeling is given off by many people. You know, they don't really mean to do this, but that's what happens. Is that you somehow don't have the right to talk about these issues because you are not Kuwaiti. On the other hand, in India, it's the opposite. It's that you are Indian, but you still don't know what the Indian experience is about. And I guess I'm not fully aware of it. I can't say that I do, but I try to understand them and I, ha and I have a stake in them. But people there will, you know, will tell you that, well, you don't live here. Mm -hmm. You've gone and settled abroad. You, you know, why does it matter to you? How, you know, you don't vote. You don't say. have any idea about what's happening. Exactly. You don't live here. Exactly. Yeah. So you, you know, just a passport doesn't give you the right to talk about our issues. Yeah. So there is, uh, you call India your passport country. Yes. But there is a, there is a line I read. I can relate to a lot of what you're saying, almost everything. And I think, Every second or third generation expat living in Kuwait can feel you on those lines. But this reminds me of something that uh, if you've heard of Suketu Mehta, he's an Indian writer. No, I'm not very familiar, I'm sorry. Uh, but he wrote this book called Maximum City. It's uh, on Bombay, okay. Bombay Lost and Found. And he wrote, because he went through the same experience. He lived in India and he um, then he traveled. And then when he came back, he got a total culture shock. Exactly. And he wrote, I'm an exile, citizen of the c country of longing. So you're like an exile in your own country. Country, exactly. Yeah. I'm sort of an exile everywhere. <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think all of us, you know, as you said, second, third gener generation expats, we feel that we're sort of, well, not really, we don't really belong to the country whose passport we hold. We yeah. don't really belong to where we live. We're sort of in this limbo. But what is the need that people feel of belonging anywhere? Like having a, the, uh, having a very urgent need for national or cu uh, cultural identity do you think i think that's an i think that's a need that's sort of created in in today's world as i said by the 
by the rhetoric of the nation state, of the idea of a nation state. Uh, I think it's, it's sort of become necessary for you to identify as Indian or Kuwaiti or American or whatever. You know, it's, and if you don't, you are somehow, you're somehow apolitical. And I've heard it before, is that people assume that because you can't, you have difficulty identifying with a particular country in its entirety, that you are then apolitical or therefore you are somehow, you know, this utopian uh, cosmopolitan. Um, and I think that is, how should I put it? That's again, as I said before, it's sort of trying to, you know, uh, box people into categories when the when their reality is not categorizable per se. Speaking of categories, on October 4th, you wrote a very long, uh, wordy article on entitled Do Men Need Feminism? Beyond Emma Watson and oh. He for She. Okay. Oh, yes, I remember that one, but slightly. <laughs> I don't remember what um, I said. <laughs> so you, you, you started off with, with a quote by Emma Watson. She says, I decided that I was a feminist, and this seemed uncomplicated to me. But you also go on, on, on the definition of feminism, and you say, like most uh, other isms, it's more than its definition. Uh, definition. Um, it's shaped by the values and beliefs that feminists themselves bring to the table. But what they say and what they do, it's a philosophy caught in a struggle between the dictionary, the activist, and time. Um, this initiative, he for she, um, they, what, what she's asking or what, what they're pro uh, promoting is that they want, they ask men to speak for women. Batul, do you think this uh, decentralizes women? You're removing them from the equation. You're asking men to actually do it. No, I, I don't think it does. I think, I think the he for she initiative is timed really well. Because if, personally, I think when it comes to a struggle, when it comes to the oppressed fighting for empowerment, the, I think the struggle and the fight must begin with the one who's oppressed. It is they who must take the stand. And I think when uh, the women's rights movement began, it was rightly that women were taking the stand. It was women who, you know, who paraded for women's rights, for, right, for voting rights, who went to jail for this. And that's rightly so. But I think there comes a time when the narrative of the oppressed becomes overused. Mm-hmm. People become desensitized to it. That's why I think that it's really important that even men talk about women's issues and express their opinions on it. Because again, it's feminism is, yes, it's feminism, so you assume it's about only about women's rights. But no, it isn't. It is much more than that. It's about men's rights. It's about gender equality. So it also extends to, uh, you know, transsexuals. So it's... Um, I think it is important for men to talk about women's rights because in I think it's you create a dichotomy of inequality where one where women are subordinate to men and you think that it's a perfect power relationship but in a way men have also sort of dehumanized themselves by creating a, a this dichotomy society not only has over centuries shall we say, as I said, dehumanized women or place them uh, below certain values that everyone calls human. 
Uh, but men have been forced to do the same in many ways. And men have been denied the ability to be human. That They have to not show emotion. That They have to be tough and strong and macho. You know, when, and in that system, it's both who are getting hurt. It's both men and women. So I don't think it decentralizes women, I think. But men, by talking about women's issues, recognize the inequality. They bring it to the fore. And in doing so, they, can, they are also expressing and bringing to light how gender inequality has had an adverse effect on human society as a whole. You say um, Emma Watson, UN address wasn't perfect, game-changing or revolutionary. But then again, it's it's not easy to be perfect or game-changing. It was clear, purposeful, and timely. Yes. You think it's timely? I think it. I think it was timely. Um, as I said, it's timely because the he for she initiative. I think is timely. I think it's. We are now. I think it's now time for uh, women's rights movements to include the voices of men as well. Mm-hmm. You know. I said. I think it's becoming a trend. Everyone is becoming a feminism right these days. Feminist. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's called a transfer. <laughs> you know, it makes it sound like high fashion. <laughs> <laughs> but but I love you said you can be right in only one way, but wrong in many. Do you actually? I think because we, you can say in that that's more of a philosophical uh, tangent, I guess. Mm-hmm. Because what I'm trying to say is that you can't say something that anyone can say something that's very profound, very true. But at the same time, there are. Probably, uh, if you try to analyze that statement, uh, there are probably quite a few faults with it, or it doesn't apply in many situations. There are hundreds of exceptions. You know, as I said, it, it isn't perfect. There's no such thing as perfect. There's no perfect speech. There's no perfect ideology, perfect theory, perfect worldview. All we have are estimates, and that we must keep changing. Must we must be willing to accept the faults in these worldviews and keep changing them. Uh, speaking of, of theologies and ideologies, sorry, um, for half an hour I'm trying to nag out of you um, <laughs> who, who exactly is your uh, idol um, uh, theory or, or belief system or a person and you are an Obama girl. <laughs> <laughs> is that true? Yeah, I mean, I'm... Okay, again, then I think we've talked about it earlier. You I'm describe not, it. You I'm described not, it. You're a uh, you're a pragmatic liberal. I'm a pragmatic liberal. So I'll. What does that mean? To me, that means it. In, uh, in term again, when I say liberal, I mean liberalism in the international relations sense. Mm-hmm. So not necessarily. Which is what you're studying right now. Exactly. Yes. So In the nec- UK. Yes. Okay. So not necessarily liberalism in you know however particular political systems define it. So. Uh, yes, I believe in the individual. I believe in the rights of the individual. I believe that um, there is that individuals are not necessarily evil. That there is a potential, a great potential for a mutual cooperation, for mutual interest to lead to peace. Um, mm-hmm. And but at the same time, I sort of, uh, I don't. Uh, take for granted that human beings are self-interested. I don't take for granted that, um, you know, that that war uh, is something that can be completely eradicated. I think that there are, I think that, I think it's a balance that conflict 
conflict driven by self-interest and cooperation driven by mutual interest will must necessarily exist um, simultaneously together. You cannot separate the two. So long as there is self mutual interest, there is also self-interest. So long as there's conflict, there's also cooperation. What is ENV initiative? Oh, I'm glad you asked that question, really, because um, that's um, a very important work that I'm doing and very proud of. Uh, the NV initiative established in 2011, uh, and we worked towards uh, promoting social responsibility in the Arab world. Uh, our three main areas of focus right now are capacity building, education, and the environment. Mm. Uh, I'm a, I'm a part-time project assistant with them, so my work involves sort of uh, a whole lot of things, just outreach, um, research, uh, you know, maintaining contacts, all those kind of things. And the work with Envy, I think, is um, particularly relevant to Kuwait, especially our capacity building work, because we focus on creating a much more cohesive uh, civil society in Kuwait and contributing to that. You know, Kuwait is thankfully... Um, the GCC country with the most uh, developed civil society. We have a lot of amazing activists, uh, human rights groups, and other organizations, environmental groups, who are motivated, who have amazing ideas, who really want to change their country. Uh, but one problem with the sector as a whole is that it's a, it's, um, a little less cohesive and coordinated uh, than it can be and than should be for it to be effective. Mm-hmm. So... With our capacity building work, we hope to contribute towards, um, you know, make our little contribution towards getting these different groups together and ma- and helping them by providing them the skills that they'll need to go out and advocate and make an impact. You say literature and reason equals salvation. Salvation of what, from what, to what? Well, I should have probably got rid of that from my Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's go to another question. One of your greatest gifts from God, I call him Dad. Do you want to elaborate? I I think that's a really old post. I wrote on Father's Day. So you don't, you don't. I don't. I know. I mean, I agree. I I agree because you know. You have to, or no? Because I really think my dad is amazing. I love my dad. (laughs) You know, he is God's faults. Like I think all of us have. (laughs) All of us. We only realize them late. Late. I think, and I think all of us have issues with our parents, whether it's our mom or dad, whatever. Uh, we all, you know, wish they were different or they had behaved differently. But yes, I love my dad. I think he is—he has ha- had a profound impact on my life, and I would not change that. You've written um, in, on your blog that there is one thing that I have vowed never to relinquish, and that is hope. Mm-hmm. But do you think there? Do you still believe in this? Yes, I think I do. do I you- mean, my favorite movie is The Shawshank Redemption, yep. and that's all about hope. <laughs> So yes, I think I think it's rated the best of all time. But do you believe there is something such as false hope? And where does one yeah. draw the line between the two? Yes, there is false hope. Um, I I hold hope, but I'm not an I I think this you know, I think it should be obvious by now that I'm not an idealist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm I'm a realist with a little bit of optimism in me. Um, I can see when things aren't going to work out. I can tell you that, no, this project isn't going to work. Oh, no, this person isn't going to change. I can tell you that. But I like, I like the idea of hope. I like making, sh- I like 
telling myself every day that things can be better, that the world I work in, things I do can improve. Because without that, there's no reason for it to go on. Mithu, last question. All right. Um, will you vote for Hillary Clinton? No. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? Um, well, okay, I am a feminist, yes. But I'm not going to vote for Hillary Clinton just because she's a woman. I'm sorry. That's really ridiculous. I didn't, I didn't imply that. I didn't, I didn't I know, really I know, think about I know, that. I know, you didn't, <laughs> I know you didn't imply that. But then that's the, a logical question that most people have. You know, here's this person talking about feminism and she isn't going to vote for it for Hillary Clinton. No, you have every right to do so. Just convince me why you're not doing it. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with her policies. Um, I think, uh, you know, she she voted in favor of the Iraqi invasion, I believe. Um, her, I, I don't like, uh, there's also the recent little um, controversy over her using her personal email. Uh, and while it seems like a real thing to most people, I've, with my experience in working with some government agencies, I see, I've seen that it's really important to have transparency. So in, I don't feel like she's a very transparent um, person as a politician. Pragmatic? Yeah, uh, she's pragmatic, probably, but uh, I don't agree with her. I wouldn't vote for her. Unless she, may, unless she you know, really comes clean. No. Would you, uh, then would you, uh, would, ah, would you vote for the other candidate, Carly Fiorina? Um, isn't she Republican? No. <laughs> no I'm, I'm, I just have a... I feel like the Republican... Uh, nothing against Republicans. I mean, you know, you have, they have the right to... So vote. you're not going to cast a vote, that's what you're trying to say. <laughs> In I mean, I can't, I, can't, I can't cast a vote anyway. So, you know, this is just like uh, outsiders talking. <laughs> um, Batul, you've greeted, greeted us with such elegance and grace. And um, I wish this discourse would go longer than the... Um, minutes that we're tied with but we have a last question for you okay who is Betul? i'd give you normally a very long list of labels and categories but i'm not going to do that today you know that's that's something i'll save for my next job interview i think i'm just like everyone else i'm just a very critical i like to think of myself as a very critical person who doubts a lot who tries to hope a lot and is still looking for her way in life that's me thank you Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome.